Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. New York Times, Jim Rutabaga, media reporter. Hi there, Mr. Rutabaga. This is um, Susan Underhill. I'm a PR person. Yes, that's what I am. How come you never report about my client, Kion Wolf? She is a huge star. She's really breaking out right now. Everybody wants to talk to her. Oh, hold on, I got a call. Whoopi, is that you? No, she can't go on The View. She's too busy. It's crazy. I know. I, I gotta go. I gotta go. I got the New York Times on the other line. Are you still there? Sort of. Look, I have to say this. I've heard Kion Wolf. You sound a lot like her. Really? Me? I've never been told that. Maybe you should talk to my colleague, um, Susan Danger. Oh, hey, is this the New York Times? Hey, this is <clears throat> Susan Danger. Uh, I understand you're begging for an interview with our client, Kion Wolf. Hold on one second. I, I got a call here. Savannah? Savannah Guthrie? I'm not sure. Maybe she can do the Today Show with you, but this New York Times guy has first crack at her, okay? And if he says no, then she's all yours. Say hi to Matt and Willard for me. Oh, I didn't know that. Sorry. All right, so what's it going to be, huh? I'm really sorry, but except for the coughing, you sound like the first person who also sounded like Kion Wolf. This is bizarre. I would have been happy to talk to the real Kion Wolf. There's no need for this masquerade. definitely pass that along to her when she gets off the line with the Access Hollywood people. <clears throat> we'll be in touch, Mr. New York Times. I hope not. Oh my god. Did I blow it? Why did I think I needed a fake PR person? Why couldn't I just believe in the basic decency of people? Is this the kind of incident that's going to surface years from now and persuade people I'm unfit for greater responsibilities? Nah, nobody cares. Today on the show, Donald Trump's multiple personalities. Also, two proposals to change Election Day. And now his secret PR person name is Sassy Lamplighter, Colin McEnroe. That is true. When I call pretending to be my own PR person, I always claim I'm Sassy Lamplighter. So does this kind of thing matter? We're going to talk to Mark Fisher uh, from The Washington Post in just a second about that. Later in the show, uh, we will be talking about Election Day in two different ways. Uh, One way would be if Election Day were some kind of national holiday so that uh, nobody would be precluded precluded from voting by having to be at work. And then the other way would be if people could vote online. Eh, eh, there may be some real problems with that. But David Pogue, if anybody knows what the problems are, David Pogue would know. So he's going to uh, talk to us about that uh, towards the end here. But uh, at the beginning, yes, we're going to talk to Mark Fisher, senior editor of The Washington Post. His book with co-author Michael Cranish, Trump Revealed, will be out on August 23rd. It's almost hard to believe that anything else could be revealed about Donald Trump that hasn't already been revealed, except that, I mean, you know, until like Friday or something, we didn't know about this craziness. So um, so let's talk about this craziness. Mark Fisher, welcome to the show. Yeah, good to be with you. So set this up for us. First of all, when did all this happen, all this stuff with him or with somebody who sounded a lot like him uh, claiming to be a PR person? Put this in a, a time frame for us. Sure. It happened over the course of a good 15 to 20 years, uh, starting in the late 1970s and going all the way into the 90s. Uh, and uh, throughout that period, he would call uh, any number of editors and reporters at newspapers and other news organizations uh, claiming to be either John Miller or John Barron. And uh, it 
it's not as if this was a mystery until last Friday. Uh, if you go back, you'll find that a number of these reporters wrote about being called by a Trump PR man who sounded awfully like Donald Trump. Uh, and there are stories I found in New Jersey and New York and Washington and so on. And uh, we talked to a number of those folks, and they said uh, that they were either suspicious that it was Trump or they knew that it was Trump. Some of them thought he was just uh, being playful and, and uh, pranking them, and others were really annoyed or offended uh, by the dishonesty of what he was doing. And some of them were just creeped out by the kinds of things he was saying. Yeah, well, maybe we'll get to the creepiness of all this. But hasn't he at least admitted to some of this under oath back around 1990? Yes, in 1990, in a court case, uh, he was deposed, and he was specifically asked if he ever uh, made calls uh, representing himself as John Barron. He said yes, he did occasionally use that name on the phone. So uh, it's it's in court papers under oath, and so for him now to uh, do a flip and say that he uh, never did that and that's not him on the tape uh, is uh, you know yet another one of these cases where the truth today for Donald Trump uh, is not at all affected by any facts that took place prior to today. Yeah, so we should be clear about this, as you're suggesting. He uh, not only denies that part of it, he denies all of it. He denies at least the most recent utterance of his is to deny that any of this stuff ever happened. Yeah, well, that's that's what he said. I mean, he he he, uh, he was scheduled to speak to us for the story that that appeared in the Washington Post on Friday, and then he uh, he, he didn't do so. And when the story came out, uh, he phoned into uh, NBC on set on Friday morning. And um, at first, when they played the tape for him, he, he was kind of uh, not certain. He said, I don't know. That doesn't sound like me. And then within a few sentences, he decided to just uh, throw his marker down. And he said, nope, that's not me. All right. Let's play the tape for you. This is uh, what it sounds like. He's talking to Sue Carswell, a reporter at People magazine in 1991. She's covering uh, rumors about Trump's divorce from Ivana, his relations with uh, Marla, and rumors about Carla Bruni, the fir- future First Lady of France. couple of different firms. Uh, I mean, that explains it all. clears that up. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So nobody has come forward saying, I mean, there actually are one or two people named John Miller who have roles involving the press or being spokespeople. Nobody's come forward and said, oh, no, that was me. No, there have been about uh, a zillion uh, new Twitter accounts named John Miller, but they're all <laughs> they're all spoofs, and most of them have funny noses on their on their pictures. Um, so uh, no, there's no John Miller that's come forward. There's no John Barron that's come forward. Uh, Trump had this very uh, fascinating uh, obsession with the name Barron through 
at least four decades. He named his son Baron uh, back in the uh, early 2000s after the uh, success of The Apprentice. Trump commissioned a dramatic TV series about a uh, New York builder very much like himself. And when the script came in for the pilot for that show, the uh, Trump was given review of the script and he went through the whole thing. And his only request to the screenwriter was, can you change the name of the main character to John Barron? Uh, so he just has this uh, fascination with that name. Two R's, like the publication, right? Barons. Um, yeah, right. So um, let's, I mean, I always sort of think that we should at least try to think of, like, what's the most reasonable explanation for something like this? So some of this stuff has to do, not all of it apparently, but some of it has to do, as you heard there, with his somewhat fractious divorce from uh, from Ivana and his pairing up with his future wife, Marla Maples. Um, and... Uh, there's one, that one long uh, transcript that uh, you guys published that's really, it's just full of all kinds of bizarre <coughs> diversions and digressions and conversations about Carla Bruni and who we're told is a very beautiful woman about 62 times. Um, and I mean, one thing that I did think is, well, there might be some things that he wants to say. But he's not really in a position legally to say if one's going through a divorce, if if, if there's a lot of things at stake. Um, uh, I'm trying to come up with a rationale for this. So the rationale would be, well, I really want to say this, but I really can't say it as Donald Trump. So I'll make somebody else up and, and he'll say it. Um, I, I don't think that covers everything that he did. No. And, and uh, it's not clear that he ever had any inhibitions about speaking about any of that stuff in his real name and voice. Uh, so why would he need this alter ego is an excellent question. He used the, the, the alter ego generally to make promotional kinds of calls. So he, it wasn't always about his marriages or his divorces. Mm-hmm. He would often call the news desks of uh, New York newspapers uh, as John Barron, uh, just uh, promoting the fact that Trump was going to show up at a particular nightclub that evening and they should have a photographer there because Trump would be seen with some starlet or model of the moment. Uh, so he, it was a promotional device. Perhaps he made those calls when it would be unseemly for Trump to be tooting his own horn. Even even Donald Trump, apparently, there were, there were some limits to his uh, the shame of uh, shamelessness of his of his self promotion. So he would use this other identity for that purpose. Uh, but also, it, it's pretty clear to me, listening to the re- recording, that he just enjoyed this. Mm-hmm. Uh, he seems to really be uh, very much enjoying uh, expressing the sexual prowess of uh, Donald Trump and his uh, allure to all these famous women like Madonna. Um, and that, uh, you know, maybe he thought it would be more credible if that came from a third party rather than from Trump himself. Although he didn't like those combat boots. He didn't like the fact that Madonna was wearing the combat boots. That's true. That that seems to come through somehow. So, yeah, this obviously this is all just sort of incredibly weird. Um, um, But one thing that it does illustrate, uh, and and maybe you as the co-author of Trump Revealed have even deeper thoughts about this, is that he never really sees much of a distinction between his private life his life as a celebrity and his life as a different kind of public figure, maybe somebody who is trying to influence public policy or run for president or whatever. It's all kind of the same thing for him. It's all grist for the same mill. So there's I think one of the things that comes through in these conversations is, 
he's really not making those kinds of demarcations that his business career is helped by his celebrity life. His celebrity life is helped by the whiff uh, of notions of all kinds of romantic entanglements with with famous women with whom he may or may not have entangled himself. And then maybe all of this helps uh, his strange political ascent. Well, yes, it, it, I don't know if it helps his political ascent, but it certainly helped uh, the creation of his uh, business empire. And he very much use of uh, this kind of image making and surrounding himself with beauty and uh, models and so on. He saw that as a way of creating an image where people uh, would, would want to, to use his businesses, to stay at his hotels, go to his casinos and all of that because uh, it, it would be their way of getting a piece of this, uh, this sort of tableau of, of beauty that he uh, created. For years, he would seem almost naked without gorgeous women uh, right there by his side. And uh, and that was a very calculated strategy on his part, this playboy image uh, going on, even as uh, many of the women who were publicly associated with him are now telling us uh, that he really had no interest in them and that he was kind of a homebody who uh, preferred to spend his evenings in his apartment uh, watching TV and drinking Diet Cokes. So uh, there's a real disconnect between the reality of how he spends his time uh, and the image that he creates of being surrounded by uh, all of this beauty. Yeah, and uh, there's almost this kind of Warholian interest in what does it mean to be famous? I mean, if in fact you're correct that he he almost seemed to enjoy this kind of cat and mouse game of, you know, rather than paying Sue Mengers or whoever you paid in those days to do this kind of thing for you, uh, rather than hiring a publicist, being his own publicist, getting on the phone, making all kinds of interesting and odd claims about himself, that he's he's toying with it like a cat with a mouse. Um, Absolutely. We, uh, we, uh, there, there's a, a line I was just looking at uh, writing a chapter about his relationships with women where Trump says, I create stars. I love creating stars. And he said that he did that with Ivana. He did that with Marla. He's done it with a lot of other women through the years. And he sees it as a creation process almost, and he compares it to creating a building or a hotel, uh, which which is what he really gets passionate about. Yeah, or like Pygmalion and the statue uh, come to life. So last week at this time, I was having a similar conversation. Not a similar conversation, but a conversation with Stephen Metcalf from Slade, who'd written about Trump as a figure of the baby boom. And I was saying to to him that, well, Trump was born in 46, kind of the first year you could be a baby boomer, which means that he was eight years old during the Army McCarthy uh, hearings, probably, you know, a a self-aware enough child to have some idea that something like that was going on. Uh, And then he subsequently fell much later under the spell of the mentorship of Roy Cohn, one of the leading figures of this. And this all seems a little Roy Cohn-like, doesn't it? This kind of idea of not really playing by the rules and putting information out there, not because it's the truth or not even because it it serves some obvious purpose, but just kind of creating a a, a fog of war in peacetime. Absolutely. If you look at uh, his uh, Trump's campaign strategy all along and and through the rest of his career, uh, it very much follows two of the basic tenets that Roy Cohn taught him. Number one was always attack, uh, which was Roy Cohn's motto, never defend, always attack. And so anytime Trump is criticized to the slightest degree, uh, he will go and attack the the source of that criticism uh, and and much more aggressively than he was initially attacked in the first place. The other piece is what he calls, what Roy Cohn called, truthful hyperbole. And this is uh, Trump's term for uh, his approach with the media, which is he he and the strict truth don't have a very close relationship. And so we 
you see again and again where he not only changes positions uh, politically, but he changes his account of what happened in the past, uh, and his whole uh, kind of basic story is subject to shifting at all times, and this is part of that philosophy of uh, exaggerating, simplifying uh, all the things he's been criticized for as being impolitic. That's part of a calculated, uh, lifelong pursuit on his part of attention uh, through exaggeration. It, as we're talking, it makes me think of the there's a philosophical conundrum. I think it's the one that goes, I'm always lying. Well, if I'm always lying, then I'm lying now when I'm saying that I'm lying. So I'm therefore telling the truth. But then I say I'm always lying. And there's something about that with Trump, too, that he, he takes so many different positions. He contradicts himself so frequently. He's so relative. So he's so rarely bound by anything that we would call the truth that it's hard for him to get in trouble. Like, I don't sense that he's going to get in trouble for this thing either. It's hard for him to get in trouble for what would seem like, you know, pretty significant transgressions for another candidate. You think of Joe Biden, who, you know, plagiarized a little bit of Neil Kinnock's speech about coal miners, you know, and it, it just derailed his career. You think about Gary Hart on the, you know, sitting with Donna Race on his lap on the monkey business boat, you know, and that was the end of Gary Hart. But these are like, you know, Donna Rice would be something that Trump would call somebody to talk about. <laughs> right, right. So he's held to a completely different different standard, if any standard at all. Um, and part of that is because of his simple fact, he was on TV. And so for years, uh, he was cementing this image of himself on The Apprentice as a can-do, tough uh, leader uh, who was willing to say and do things that uh, more timid people would not. And that buys him an awful lot of credibility with a large part of his audience. Uh, and so a lot of these other uh, things that, that we would normally say are evidence of dishonesty get dismissed as, oh, that's just uh, Trump being Trump. And, uh, and so he's not held to account. Uh, I think in the case of this recording, there's something a little bit different going on. I, I agree with you that the dishonesty that it uh, unveils is not going to make a difference. Uh, there, he's, he's been caught in lies before, and that, that's just never made any difference at all. But I think for those people who've listened to the recording, they come away with it with a, a sense of, of kind of creepiness on his part, that he's reveling in these descriptions of Trump's allure to women. Um, and he's doing it in such a, an odd way that I think even those of his supporters who are kind of on the fence, uh, that a number of them have, have told us that, uh, that, that this uh, reveals something about him that, uh, that they really hadn't realized before. Speaking of reveals, we're talking to Mark Fisher. Uh, he's the co-author of Trump Revealed, which will be out August 23rd. In between now, there will be 42 other stories like this one that, that come up. And to that point, Mark, one of the things that I hear in this whole John Miller, John Barron thing is the early stages of something that Trump has figured out better than almost anybody, which is you have to ride the news cycles. You have to, com you, he has decided anyway, he has to ride the news cycles. He has to make sure that his name is there in every news cycle. If nobody's talking about him, if nobody's uh, outraged by him, if nobody's uh, frustrated by him, uh, th that's a problem. So he's he's got to be his own PR guy and call up and talk to reporters to make sure that there's this churn, this constant churn. And and he took that um, from the 80s and 90s and brought it into 2016 and thought, yeah, I should just be tweeting every 20 minutes. And if I get into a Twitter war with Marco Rubio, it'll be last man standing. You know, Marco will drop out before I do. I will continue to say horrible stuff and be very unrestrained. Uh, and this all favors me. The more it's like a machine gun nest, the more you keep firing, the less likely you are to be overrun. 
has supreme confidence in his ability to cultivate and manipulate the media, and he uh, believes that he's gotten as far as he has in this campaign uh, by sticking to his old methods and, he, and running everything himself and putting out his own tweets and not hiring a, a big media staff the way uh, Hillary Clinton or any other candidate would on either party. Uh, his operation remains incredibly lean. He has a, a young former model in her 20s who is his uh, press person, and, and that's it. She's the whole press operation. Uh, you know, if you were to go over to Brooklyn and, and check in at Hillary Clinton's headquarters, you would find literally dozens of people doing that work that Trump and, and his assistant are doing themselves. And Trump believes this is what got him here, and this is what's going to take him the rest of the way. So he's really resisting the pressure from the political professionals uh, to do it the way every other politician has. And uh, we'll see if that holds up over the course of a fall campaign. Uh, but so far, that's, uh, that's working for him. And he, he's really torn now because he wants to um, appeal uh, to appear to be a, a more presidential. And he's trying to uh, bridge some of the, the, the divide with the party professionals and people in Congress and so on. Uh, on the other hand, he feels obliged to stay true to his provocative uh, and uh, sometimes uh, simplistic uh, manner uh, that got him to the nomination. And I think also one thing, I don't know if he realizes this at some conscious level, but, you know, if you contrast him to to Hillary Clinton, one difference is if you're afraid of making a mistake, if you see things that you might do or say as potential gaffes, it can really hamstring you and and things start to seem like mistakes, whether they are or they aren't. And I do think that's a position in which she, she sometimes finds herself just very concerned that something she says could be misused, could be spun a different way, uh, could be construed as a mistake. He appears never to think about this. I don't think he can associate himself with the notion of a mistake. And, and in a way, he's benefiting from this. If you never think of anything that you do as a mistake, at, at some level, at some level of existence, nothing ever is. That's true. And uh, he, he seems genuinely immune to the idea that he could have made a mistake. And, um, uh, you know, he, as, as we've read every word he's written and gone back through hundreds of interviews through the years, uh, it is extremely rare to find a, a tinge of regret in anything that he says. Um, and, and some of the people who worked with him for many years, some of his executives who have since left him, uh, will point to that and as uh, something that was initially really alluring uh, and, and uh, made it a lot of fun to work with him because they, they never looked back. They always looked forward. Uh, and there was not a, a lot of uh, uh, second-guessing going on. Uh, but in the end, they came to find that um, rather disturbing, that he had no ability to, to analyze uh, what he'd done and do better the next time and was unwilling to listen to people who said, hey, here's a better way of doing things. Um, one more question, Mark Fisher. And I'm trying to to think about how I, as then a newspaper reporter, would have handled something like this. You know, if I'd had a conversation with someone purporting to be John Miller or John Barron, and I had a sneaking suspicion that it was Donald Trump, it sounded like Donald Trump, I, I don't know that what I would do as I faced my deadline. In other words, I mean, all of these reporters that you've talked to must have had to grapple with this in some way. I just spoke to somebody. He said he was somebody, that he was a spokesman for, for Donald Trump. I don't think it's a spokesman. I think it's Donald Trump. I can't really prove it. So so how did people deal with this problem? 
Well, some of them just uh, talked to their friends and colleagues about it, and some of them did what a good reporter does, which is put it out there for people to see and let the audience make its own decisions about what's going on here and uh, kind of use that as a process to get toward the truth. And so a number of people did write uh, columns and stories in which they said uh, this John Barron character is... uh, uh, promoting uh, Trump in this way or another, and he sounds like Trump, and he speaks like Trump, and he has this intimate knowledge of Trump that that no one else could possibly have. Uh, And they wrote about that. And, um, you know, did it change people's image of Donald Trump? Probably not. Uh, It it, it, it was basically forgotten for the intervening decades. Um, But here we are, and and the fact that they wrote about it back then is now turning out to be an important part of this moment where people are looking at a presidential candidate and trying to decide something and decipher something about his character. Uh, Mark Fisher, uh, your book, uh, Trump Revealed, is uh, coming out, uh, co-authored with uh, Michael Cranish, uh, is coming out August 23rd. If I were you, I'd want to somehow or other hold part of the book open until like August 16th or something. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, it's um, we're we're holding it open as long as we possibly can. We're going to be doing an epilogue from the Republican convention that will be in the book. So if in the publishing industry to have uh, just a few weeks uh, from the end of the writing to the actual publication is is, uh, something of an achievement. Uh, So the folks at Scribners are hard at work at that. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Uh, we're going to take a little break. We're, when we come back, we'll talk. This has probably got you in really in the mood for Election Day, right? Eh, maybe not so much. But anyway, we're going to talk about what Election Day could be, how it could be different. It's a big harumph full of analytical emotion. He speaks with glee when the subject is he, and the goal is self-promotion. What would we do without the Donald, the Donald, the Donald. We are back. Oh, I quickly want to remind you, uh, or not, or perhaps inform you, that tomorrow at noon we'll be at the Peabody Museum in New Haven. Uh, we'll be recording there a show about dinosaurs. It's a good thing to record at the Peabody Museum because they have lots of dinosaurs. Um, and so if you if you ha- happen to be there, I mean, I think you have to, like, buy admission. You have to buy a ticket, you know, to go to the museum. Uh, but that's a good thing, too. And then you'll think of us as an exhibit. You know, we'll be like an exhibit. Uh, we'll be like Neolithic t- talk radio show exhibit uh, diorama thing. So uh, joining us now for a further conversation about uh, electoral life in 2016, well, we had booked Ben Mathis Lilly, but in fact, his publicist, John Snow, is joining us uh, instead. Uh, no, actually, this is Ben Mathis Lilly. He edits the latest for Slate magazine. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me. So, uh, having just had a, you know my umpteenth conversation about the complicated psychology of Donald Trump, uh, that of course gins up the question: How could Election Day be better? How could Election Day be different? And so, President Obama, in a rather unusual format or an unusual context, uh, floated an idea. Maybe you could begin by just telling us the the context in which this idea leaked out. Sure. Um, so the White House was hosting, I think it was a group of 50 uh, college journalists um, for an event, uh, and uh, President, I think, surprised this group of, of students by uh, appearing in the um, White House press briefing room. Uh, you know, he wasn't on the schedule. He, he jumped in and said he'd take a few questions from him, and a, uh, one of the students uh, from uh, Rutgers University took the opportunity to say, well, you're giving the commencement address at Rutgers uh, this spring. Would you like to do a one-on-one interview with the Rutgers paper? And, and Obama, ad- admiring the uh, the gumption that this showed, uh, said he would, and he followed through on that. 
Uh, and the interview went up, I think it was with a student named Dan Corey, uh, went up on the, uh, news, the student newspaper's website last week. Uh, and it was, uh, it was a good discussion, several issues that were germane to uh, young people, to students. And one of the, one of the questions that this uh, journalist asked was, you know, uh, United States voter turnout is fairly low. Should we consider having uh, our election day become a holiday or holding uh, elections on, on the weekend, Saturday or Sunday, uh, as it is done in, in many other countries uh, that have higher turnout? And uh, Obama said, yeah, I would get behind that. And this was, uh, as far as we can tell, I, and I still haven't seen any, any other uh, reports that he'd said this earlier, this was a, a scoop. This was the first time that he had uh, got behind this idea, uh, said that he supported it. Um, and it's, a, it's an idea with, uh, with some history, and, and, and it's one that a lot of, a lot of other people uh, from both political parties uh, have gotten behind in the past. Right. So there are places in the United States where I think Election Day is a civic holiday, Delaware, Hawaii, Kentucky, a few other places. I think New Jersey and New York, it's some kind of civic holiday. Um, and then there are other places where I think you're required to be given some time off. I think California uh, has a thing where employees who couldn't vote otherwise have to be allowed two hours off without pay or something like that. And and, and so the, the notion here obviously is, as you say, as Obama says, uh, we don't participate in our elections at the level that other countries do. Why not make sure everybody absolutely has the chance uh, to get to the polls? Um, I guess the question would be, you know, how much traction like an, uh, can an idea like this ever have? I mean, I think we know right away who's not going to want to do this. Yeah, well, I mean, right. This this comes in uh, in a larger context of a national debate about uh, voting rights and voting restrictions. And obviously, uh, you know, in these states where uh, the the right to vote or the ability to vote is being restricted, uh, this idea is not going to be a popular one. Um, you know, the, the the tide is going in the the opposite direction in many places in the United States. Uh, you know, we, uh, with voter ID laws in uh, Wisconsin, North Carolina, and elsewhere. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I mean, in the near term, it is not an idea. I mean, you can you can see Obama. He didn't say, you know, I, I support this idea and I would, I'm would, i going to tour the country uh, to propose a bill and, and try to pass a bill before I leave office. I, I think he knows that this is not really a practical political idea at this point. He's just wanted something he wants to get out there. Um, but there, there is a pretty big group of people who have been pushing this for a while. There's a, a very uh, thorough website called Why Tuesday, as in... Uh, you know, why do we vote on Tuesday? Uh, that's backed by a number of politicians, political figures, people from think tanks. So it's it's not a uh, you know it's not a fringe idea uh, supported by by some people from both parties. Um, Jack Kemp was one of the founders of this uh, this Why Tuesday organization. Um, but but yes, it's it's not one that's uh, going to get a lot of traction uh, because it would probably end up benefiting Democrats electorally. Right. And we do know Bernie Sanders has, uh, has supported uh, a similar concept publicly. Um, and right. in, in terms of why Tuesday, I mean, uh, my assumption or my understanding of this has always been that it goes back to our time as an agrarian society, where, in fact, it might be something approaching a day trip to where you had to vote and people didn't want to miss the Sabbath and people didn't want to miss uh, Market Day, which was Wednesday. So Tuesday was chosen partly just because uh, it reflected a reality that doesn't exist anymore, which is that people needed a lot of time to get to where they we're going to go to vote, right? Um, you know that's uh, that's what I what I've seen as well. Uh, it's 1845, I believe it was set as the day for uh, electoral votes to be cast in the presidential election. 
uh, and then it was uh, turned into the the nationally mandated day for congressional uh, elections in 1872. Uh, so yes, we're we're talking about a time where uh, where tra- to travel was a, a big concern and then took multiple days. And uh, obviously, 1845, uh, when this uh, date was set, was not uh, people were not thinking uh, forward to to our our uh, present time when. Uh, when our considerations were a lot different. Um, ben Mathis Lilly, this also seems to be, you know, it's really part of the bedrock debate about this country, the, about so many things that, that affect the future of this nation, is that that whole question of what should be determined by the states and what should be determined federally or right. nationally as a unit. I mean, I think probably to outside eyes, we have this insane system where the only thing that's nationally agreed on, on is what day Election Day is. After that, so there, you know, this real basic inherent right of suffrage, you know, uh, really sort of the the bedrock right of the democracy is it's mutated so many different ways. I mean, there are almost 50 different ways or, or understandings of what voting means. Sure. I mean, there, there are, I think that the, uh, the fact this may not be uh, precisely up to date, but at least it was in the last few years, there's, there's 36 days, states with early voting, uh, 14 states uh, without and uh, and that's that makes a huge difference, right? I mean, uh, that that is a, a pretty a pretty uh, uh, stark difference between your uh, your rights or what you're doing as a citizen, depending on what state you live in, and, and it could be different in neighboring states, and 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 it, it affects electoral outcomes, uh, you know, and it affects uh, people's participation. Um, so yeah, it really is a, a question of uh, kind of like what what we're trying to do as a as a society, as a civil society. And we are of two minds. I mean, yes, I mean, first of all, there's this obviously there's this political tension to which you have alluded. Republicans tend not to want uh, the broadest possible array of voting options because they feel it militates against their chances. Democrats think the more people who come out, the better. That probably will mean that people of lesser means of lower socioeconomic standing will be able to get to the polls. That'll be good for them. So there's all of that. But there's also, you know, after 2000, where like the entire other 49 states looked at Florida and went, what chads what what are the what what are you doing down there who's who's susan harris what's happening down there and then there was right. this this the hava act there was this whole idea that well you know maybe we ought to standardize more things but that doesn't seem to have that wind doesn't seem to have stayed in our sails for very long no and i mean and and i think primary and caucus season really emphasizes the absurdity of what you're talking about uh you know uh, uh, as, as many people have pointed out we we start voting with with Iowa and New Hampshire, which are very unrepresentative states uh, demographically, um, you know, uh, mostly white for one, uh, and that's kind of, and they have a you know kind of a, what you would see as a strangely outsized influence on our process. Um, and then just the uh, I mean the, the the mechanics of voting in a caucus uh, to 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 make this anecdotal, uh, you know, my my father, uh, my parents live in Colorado. My father went to vote and. He was just kind of having to look over the shoulder of the person telling the caucus vote, and it's pretty sure they just made a mistake and and put down the, his district for Hillary when it should have been Bernie Sanders, you know. And and that's what happens when you've got someone tallying votes by hand in 2016. Right. Well, this is a perfect uh, segue into our next segment, which which is going to be with David Polk about where technology could take us, uh, where we could go, uh, what what lies beyond. The Chad. But thank you, Ben Mathis Lilly. He edits this latest segment for Slate Magazine. We'll be back with David Pogue himself after this. Vote de Vote de
can predict the future of the U.S. based on this question. What's our next new national holiday? Election Day or Melania's birthday? Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. For show pages, articles, and the secret public relations names of the Here and Now staff, go to our website, wnpr.org. On tomorrow's show, revisit our conversation about why certain things disgust us. And now, back to Colin. Yeah, that show's going to be on the air uh, tomorrow while we're recording live uh, from the dinosaur room. It's probably called something else uh, of the Peabody. So uh, I hope you think about coming down at noon uh, to join us for uh, for that recording. Uh, that'll be down in New Haven. Joining us right now is David Pogue, speaking of science. Uh, he's the founder of Yahoo Tech, monthly columnist for Scientific American and host of science shows on PBS's Nova. He's been a correspondent for CBS's Sunday Morning since 2002. Uh, I'm sure there's four or five other uh, things that I, I'm not even aware of. He's a busy guy. I don't, can, I, I'm amazed he has any time uh, to be on this show, but somehow he does. So uh, David Pogue, we just got through talking about the idea of having uh, election be a national holiday so people could get to it. But another thing that we could be talking about that we will be talking about to you is the notion of whether people have to go anywhere for Election Day. We live in a digitally wired society. Some people might ask, well, why can't you just vote from your laptop or your, your tablet or your phone? What's the, what's the state of the art on this? Uh, it's a non-starter. It's, it's not going to happen. Um, I, as a technology fan, I was really excited about the prospects, and I scratched my head and said, why don't we have voting by smartphone? We have everything else by smartphone, dating and ordering and business and friendship. Um, but it turns out there's a, a central problem with voting electronically, and that is that every other kind of secure transaction in society, like banking, or buying stuff from Amazon is designed to have a paper trail. They know who you were, they know your username and password, the time and date, the price. Everything is very carefully recorded so that if there's any dispute or problem, they can trace you back. That is the opposite of what you want in an anonymous election. And that's the central problem. You can't have anonymous voting without a paper trail, but you need a paper trail in case there's some question. So it's, it's basically a security problem. Um, and that's, that's where all the experts I talked to left it. All right. Well, let's uh, go to one place where they're trying it, and that's Estonia, right? They have some kind of online voting there? That's right. Uh, Estonia uh, has a system where you have a national ID card, which we do not have in the United States. There's no national ID card, but they do. Every adult has one. It has a chip in it. And every computer has a card reader that you stick this thing into. You enter a password, uh, and then you can vote. And you, you can vote as many times as you want. It's kind of interesting. Only the last vote you make is actually ever recorded. And that's to prevent people from you know, holding you at gunpoint and saying, vote for my candidate, because you can always go back home later and <laughs> change your vote. Um, Although apparently that does go on a lot in Estonia. But anyway, continue. <laughs> exactly. You want to be careful about the gunpoint voter uh, strong-arming. Um, so they've been doing this for a few elections. They say they've had no problems. They've had no fraud. Um, there are three reasons why that experiment is irrelevant to the United States, though. One is Estonia's entire population is a million people. We have, or one million voters, rather. We have 235 million voters. So secondly, we don't have a national ID card. And thirdly, just because they say it's hacker-proof doesn't mean it is. 
a couple of years ago, some University of Michigan researchers got suspicious of all this, and they, they went to Estonia, and they watched the process, and they, they tracked how it worked. And they found two places where it would be very easy to subvert the election by changing votes. You could, you could release a virus that does it, or you could change the software on the, the servers, the computers that collect everybody's votes. Um, and they published this as a paper, and Estonian government said, that's baloney, that, that's not true, we disagree. But the University of Michigan researchers said, oh, yeah, it's, it's no more secure than anything else. All right. Now that may uh, tee up a phone call we've got coming in from Luther in Glastonbury. Hi, Luther. You're on the air. Hi. Uh, I'm an executive director of Connecticut Voters Count. Uh, I'm an election watchdog. And I'd like to uh, say I agree with everything your guest has said so far. Uh, scientists all over the world uh, agree that uh, Internet voting uh, just isn't secure enough. Uh, and... Uh, no company that does it has really exposed the code for anybody to look at, uh, never uh, allowed uh, external testing of it like they did in the, the example you just heard in Washington, D.C. So, uh, you know, and the Connecticut State Legislature uh, a few years ago passed unanimously uh, requiring the Secretary of State of Connecticut uh, to implement Internet voting. Uh, fortunately, uh, she stood against it and said it would take a constitutional amendment. And I'll just add, uh, you know, if the scientists all over the world can't implement it, you know, the state, they can't get our DNV system to work, and our motor voter registration to meet federal standards is uh, certainly the last place uh, we'd want to do uh, Internet voting. All right. So, um so it sounds like uh, you're doubling down on, on David Pogue's uh, thinking that that's fine. And and I guess, David, I mean, to me, part of the problem here is uh, the hacking part of it worries me because, in fact, you know, there's 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 lots of ways to do voter fraud. But usually when you're doing voter fraud, I mean, notwithstanding some some paranoia and past elections about diebold machines and stuff like that. But usually when you're doing voter fraud, you're doing it on a kind of a retail level. You know, you, maybe you can do 10 votes here and 100 votes there. I mean, one thing about hacking is. There's just a lot of large numbers involved. I mean, once you get inside that system, you presumably have access to, to the total. Yeah, well, there's not only large numbers in terms of voters. There's also a large number of players in the chain from your vote to the election outcome, especially when it comes to phones. So, you know, you, you, don't, you would have to have control over the manufacturer, Apple or Samsung. Then there's whoever wrote the app. Then there's Verizon or AT&T or whoever is conducting your vote to the collection center. Then there's the collection center. There's just so many pieces where somebody bad could intervene and change the election. That's, that's the impression that I get from, from security researchers. And I'm, I'm really <laughs> a strange person to be, to be <laughs> saying this because I, I, I scoff at all this. I'm like, come on. If they can send a man to the moon – you know, 50 years ago, uh, they, can, they can find a way to do this. They can do this securely. Um, Tesla has a car that drives itself. You know, we should be able to do this. Um, but it, it turns out that not only does virtually every researcher disagree with me, uh, but also it doesn't increase voter turnout. It's mm. really counterintuitive. The other country that tested this was Norway. Their elections in 2011 and 2013 permitted internet voting. And the whole world held its breath and watched 
And guess what? No improvement in voter turnout. It turns out that you know, the, the number of people who are dissuaded from voting by the inconvenience of going someplace is, is not as big as we think. So I, I, you sort of stole not only the wording, but even the tone of what was going to be my next question to you. But I'll do it anyway. I'm I mean, genius that way. Yeah, I know. So you're David Pogue. <laughs> and, and, and so we know that, it, as I said to Ben Mathis Lilly in 2000, we all gasped as we heard about hanging chads, these little damp pieces of paper sitting down in Florida that were affecting the entire future of the United States. What, what's a chad? I never heard of a chad before. How could that be? How could something that weird and primitive be... Uh, be driving forward the the outcome of a presidential election. And so there was a little bit of a collective moment of technological introspective. Like, how could we maybe go forward with some systems that we would have a lot more confidence in that's not something scrawled across a piece of paper or a hanging chat or, or, or whatever? And so I guess what I would say is, what's the good state of the art? What, what works? And then maybe we can also talk about, like, maybe the next thing we might get after what works now. Well, I, th- I think both history and all the experts agree there is nothing that is 100% secure. Mm-hmm. There is no system that cannot be fiddled with. There, there are some experiments. Um, Oregon, for example, sends you your ballot three weeks ahead of the election, and you can send it back by mail. Mm-hmm. So you get the convenience aspect while still having a paper trail. But um, So this guy, Avi Rubin, is a professor of computer science at Johns Hopkins, and he wrote a book called Brave New Ballot. He studied this, and he he told me that the most secure possible system is the following. You vote on a touch screen, which gives you the advantages of electronics, like, you know, disabled people who are blind or deaf or short of stature or in a wheelchair get all the beauty of an electronic voting system. That thing prints out your ballot. You look it over to make sure it, it printed what you said, and then you turn that in to a person or an optical scanner that, that collects it. So that, that doesn't exist very often, but he says that's the, by far the, the most secure and most problem-free system. It, it all is, as we were saying in the previous segment, so incredibly non-standardized. And in fact, Oregon, I think I have this right, I think that's the way they vote in Oregon. I don't think they have election day where you go to machines and optical scanners and things like that. I think you either vote by mail or you can show up at the town clerk's office that day and do the the equivalent of a mail vote. Um, right. And there's and you can register online there, too. So it, it's, they're, they're often singled out, even by President Obama, as a place where they're innovating. Although that sounds I don't know. It, it sounds a lot different from what you just described as the optimal way to vote. That's true. And that's remember, that's a security expert speaking from a security standpoint. Um, Oregon is clearly going after the convenience aspect. And indeed, they report the highest voter, some of the highest voter turnouts in the country. I mean, this is this non-standard thing is another big problem in this country. We we don't have any national way to do it. People say, oh, Norway did this. Oh, Estonia did this. But in this country, every state uses a different system and has its own setup, which makes the thing 50 times more complicated and more impossible to summarize. So um, 10 years from now, are we having the same conversation or have biometrics or ocular scans or something uh, entered into all this? Yeah, they're they're fooling with it. You know, uh, biometrics would be you know uh, retina scans or, or scanning your voice um, or your fingerprints. There are experiments, two-factor authentication, 
which is what, like what Estonia does, where you have to prove who you are in two different ways, both a password and a, a, a code sent to your phone. Um, but people, and by people I mean both voters and security experts, are going to be really, really suspicious ever since that Diebold fiasco of a couple of elections ago where, uh, where they, they didn't make their voting machine code inspectable by anybody, and the CEO of the company uh, told a Republican gathering, it's my job to deliver the election to the Republicans this year. That was, that was not a good thing for the CEO of the voting machine company to say. No, or even his spokesman pretending to be him. Uh, all right. Uh, thanks very much for joining us today. David Pogue. My pleasure. Thanks. That's David Pogue. He's founder of Yahoo Tech, monthly columnist for Scientific American, host of the science shows on PBS's Nova. I think he's David Pogue. I mean, one thing we can say about this particular segment was, we got David Pogue. I think we covered it. So um, very quickly, the one thing that I would say, and maybe this sort of goes to that whole question of whether why online voting doesn't necessarily increase turnout, maybe people ultimately need to know, need to see voting as a moment that's demarcated somehow in their lives. You know, some moment where you either went to a polling place or at least sat or obtained somehow an absentee ballot or a ballot by mail and thought, OK, right now I'm voting. You know, right now I'm doing this thing that's voting that just sort of looking at your smartphone and doing the equivalent of clicking a like button or something like that isn't sort of enough really for people to feel like their suffrage engines are fully engaged. It may have something to do with that. Anyway, thanks to everybody who helped out with today's show, especially Betsy Kaplan, who's been pulling this together, and Kion Wolf, who's been on the board, making it all sound so great. Uh, come visit us at the Peabody Museum. We'll start at noon tomorrow talking about dinosaurs, because what are we going to talk about the, at the Peabody Museum? We're going to talk about dinosaurs. It's gone, they'll drop you like a ton of bricks. In business pleasure or with our wives, it's going to be tough on us little guys to have to play them dirty politics. Politics, oh politics, you gotta know just how to vote. Kiss that baby, shine that shoe, if you know what's good for you, you got to play them politics. May I speak to Greg Hill, please? Speaking. Hi, this is Kyone Wolf. I'm calling up. This doesn't sound like Kyone Wolf at all. Who is this? I don't know what to tell you. It's, it's me. No, seriously. Who are you? All right, you got me. Wolfie doesn't even exist. I've been voicing her stuff all these years. Anyway, I'm calling on behalf of WNPR and our fundraiser. No thanks. 